Lord's spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances, nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips, and faithfulness the belt around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely filled, be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. The Lord. All righty. So, I will be honest with you guys. Okay, moment of, moment of truth here. I have not spent a whole lot of time in the book of Isaiah in my lifetime. It's a book that, you know, I've, I've read, I'm sure, at least once in my life. I have done studies here and there. I probably led a couple of youth group lessons. But I've never really spent a lot of time diving into it deeply. Um, but the more I have found myself doing that, especially this Advent season, as, as we are going through that, uh, through the book of Isaiah for Advent, um, the more I get into it, the more I realize that there is a whole lot of depth to this book. There, it, is, it is a profound book of the Bible. Um, and it's a book that, although it, it details a lot of um, you know, sinfulness and destruction, it provides some pretty incredible hope. Both hope for those in the first advent, the, the time before Jesus came, and also those of us now in the second advent as we wait for his return. For the people of God living during Isaiah's lifetime, um, in the, about the 8th century uh, BC, these words are, are cause for introspection and for hope. The nation of Israel um, had, there were some stories throughout their history of some pretty heroic um, conquests and heroic people, um, King David, namely, among them. Um, and then they saw great prosperity under King David's son, King Solomon. But Solomon made a rather fatal mistake in his leadership um, as, he, as he tried to raise up his own kingdom and raise up the glory of his kingdom he ended up enslaving a portion of his own people. And he, he forgot that the true role of the king, the king of Israel, was not to bring their own um, wealth and, and prosperity and popularity up, but to follow God's word, to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord's people. So then his son, Rehoboam, then followed in his footsteps and because of this family's selfishness, the people then revolted. And there was this civil war. And so the one nation of Israel had now become two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. 
So as it goes now, these nations were at war with one another, north and south. And the king of Judah, King Uzziah, um, we see it in a couple different places in scripture. He, he dies. Um, as we read in Isaiah chapter 6, this happens during the lifetime of Isaiah um, and in the same kind of time as when he receives this vision that is recorded here as the book of Isaiah. Um, so we have God's people divided. The king of Judah has died. The Assyrians to the east Um, They are rising up as this global power. They are conquering nations left and right around them. And so understandably, all of this makes the people of God a little bit anxious, a little bit fearful of what their future will hold. Are they going to remain a nation? Are they going to be overthrown or enslaved or killed? How can they reconcile what is going on in the world around them with the promises that God has given them in the past that they would be that holy nation and that this rescuer would come from their line, the line of Jesse, the line of David. Just like you and I, they struggled to believe that when the circumstances around them, the situations they are in are challenging, when things are hard, when, when we feel like we are suffering, it's hard for us to remember that God's promises are true. They had some doubts. We have some doubts. Doubt is a common thing. Doubt is an okay thing. Doubt is something that they dealt with and something that we deal with. But through the prophet Isaiah, God begins to speak. He begins to describe this coming king, this coming kingdom, the one who would come to restore relationship with God, to restore all things, to make all things new and right and whole. And then the prophet Isaiah gives us an image. He gives us a metaphor, a way of visualizing and seeing this coming king, this coming kingdom. And it's a cute little plant. He says, a shoot will grow up from the stump of Jesse. A branch will sprout from his roots. A shoot, a new branch springing up from the main stalk or trunk of a tree or plant. A shoot new branch full of life, full of life from the stump of the old tree. I don't know about you, but I have seen something like this before, um, quite a few times actually. When we first moved, back when I was like five years old, we, we moved houses and we got to this new house and there were just giant trees all over the property. And as a kid, it was fantastic because that means climbing and that means dart wars with my brother and it was a blast. But there were certain trees that were very large right around our house. Um, and so they were kind of dangerous. They were right by the phone line. They were, you know, if it was too windy, they were old. So who knows what's going to happen. Um, so we ended up cutting down several of them. And it was shocking to me. I was amazed at how often these little plants would grow up out of the trunks. The trunks, that, the stumps that had been chopped off They're just a couple of inches out of the ground. And yet, new life, new trees come back pretty quickly. And so this is the image that Isaiah gives us here. New life from the remains of death and destruction. But he he calls this the stump of Jesse. And Jesse, as I mentioned earlier, is the father of King David. The King David, the man after God's own heart. 
the family lineage that we now can look back and see made its way to Jesus, right? So why, why is Isaiah saying at this time that this is the stump of Jesse? Why is he not saying this is the tree of Jesse? To answer that, we have to look back a really long ways, two verses before what I read. Isaiah chapter 10, 33 and 34 reads like this. Look, the Lord God of heavenly forces is chopping off the branch with terrible power. The loftiest ones are about to be cut down and the exalted laid low. He will strike down the forest thickets with an axe and mighty Lebanon will fall. The Lord is chopping down the branches and the trees that have terrible power, or as another translation says, terrifying power. These, these trees that it says God is cutting down are trees that by the world standards are mighty and powerful. Even in the, the characters of men like David and Solomon, these are powerful, powerful men, but scripture shows us how there are some rather not so great moments in their lives, right? There are some some tales of how they rebelled against God and God's way. They are remembered as these heroes and these wise men and these great leaders. But the Bible also shows us their corruption and their abuse of power. So by the time we get to the prophet Isaiah here in Israel's history, the number of good kings that they could say they had is pretty, pretty low could probably be counted on one hand. The family tree was meant to be this source of life and fruit for Israel. And instead it was diseased and poisoned because of misuse of power and failure to follow the ways of God and follow the heart of God. This disease ran so deep that when the, the prophets that we read here, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, when those prophets come and they, they talk to the people of Israel and they pass along, they're, they're meant to be God's messengers to the people, right? They pass along God's word to the people, but then they are seen as enemies of God and enemies of the king that God had chosen rather than messengers of God's word. Because they speak out they are seen as enemies of God. So we see that even the people of Israel are not safe from God's judgment. Because the people of Israel are not safe from sin. And so as strong and as mighty as this forest of Lebanon is, as strong and mighty as this uh, nation of Israel and this lineage looks to the outside world, it is shown to be weak and vulnerable as the Lord cuts it down cuts it down to a stump. Pretend that's the Lord. Just kidding. Don't do that. Uh, all that's left is an image of a mighty forest that is now stumps. And yet God is faithful. God is faithful to the promise that he made all those years ago, generation and generation of unfaithfulness ago. God remains faithful to that promise. He remains faithful in saying that that shoot will become a branch and that branch is going to bear fruit once again as diseased and sinful as the last tree was. 
And I want you to notice something with me here. God's promise of a king does not come because the people are trying hard enough or because the people are changing their ways and repenting. God's promise comes because it's God's promise, because God is faithful. Because when God makes a promise, God follows through on that promise. God tells them, look, where, where you see a stump, I see a shoot. Where you see failure and destruction, I see hope. Not because they are faithful, but because God is faithful. Because God is gracious to save them. And so this shoot, this small little plant, the promise of God's faithfulness, it rises from this old life that has been cut down. And then here's where this passage gets really exciting. If, if you're not excited already. Um, I mentioned earlier the, the kind of profound depth that, that the book of Isaiah has. Um, and that, that I have been discovering more and more the longer I spend in it. And this is an example of it right here. Um, the, the more I studied and prepared for this sermon, um, the more I just felt this, this theme of peace wash over me as I read this prophecy from Isaiah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a few verses for you again. Um, verses 2 through 5. The Lord's spirit will rest upon him, a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of planning and strength, a spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. He will delight in fearing the Lord. He won't judge by appearances nor decide by hearsay. He will judge the needy with righteousness and decide with equity for those who suffer in the land. He will strike the violent with the rod of his mouth. By the breath of his lips, he will kill the wicked. Righteousness will be the belt around his hips and faithfulness the belt around his waist. Does that not bring you joy this morning? We're going to dive into some some verses here, and, and I hope that you can, I hope that you get as excited as I am. Uh, so verse two, it, it talks about the characteristics of this king and the fact that the characteristics of the king will be the, the same as the characteristics of the spirit of God. So this is not just a human king that is coming. This is a human king and a divine king. And we see that when we, when we look at this, this whole 10 verse passage that, that uh, Dakota read for us. Verse 10, it says that on that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. So verse 10 says he's the root. But then like we looked at earlier, verse 1 says he's the shoot. He's the shoot and he's the root, which rhymes and is super catchy. And also shows us that he is the shoot, humanity, and that he is the root, divine. He is both human and divine. Fully man, fully God, this is the coming king. Not a king strictly of worldly standards. Not a king that is strictly God, but that is fully both. Can you imagine now if this prophecy told of this coming king, but it made no mention of the divine. It made no mention of the spirit. If this coming leader relied only on human giftings and human understandings, that's what we have today, right? That's what we've had for the last however many thousands of years. But thank the Lord that this coming Messiah is led by the Spirit, that the Spirit rests on him. In fact, there's, there's kind of a threefold gifting here of the Spirit. 
that it mentions. First of all, wisdom and understanding. He is able to see right to the heart of the issue. Wisdom and understanding. There's no messing around with the, the circumstances and, and the emotions outside of this. Those, those details that do not matter. This coming king sees straight to the heart of the issue. Wisdom and understanding and discernment about what truly matters. That can only come from God. And then counsel and might. These are military terms. Um, So this coming king is a, a warrior king. He has counsel and he has might. He knows exactly what to do, counsel, and has the power to then carry that out. Counsel and might. But he also has a knowledge and fear of the Lord. There's this humility and respect and reverence for God and for the way of God, the word of God, and for God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Now think about this for a minute. And this is where... Oh, is it going to work? This is where I get goosebumps. This coming king has wisdom, has understanding, has counsel, has might, delights in God and in God's word and in God's will, is this not just so incredibly opposite of the rulers of our day? Can you imagine for a second a leader of our country, a leader of any country in this world who acted like this? A leader that's not, I'm going to switch that because you don't want to just see that over and over again. A leader that is not swayed by top advisors or by popular opinion or by trying to gain the most followers or voters or whatever the the case may be, a leader who acted and led with wisdom and understanding and counsel and might with a delight in the fear of the Lord. That is beautiful. That is the leader that I want to follow. And that is the leader that none of us will ever see in the humans of our world. That is the leader that is only revealed in Jesus. If we are following anything less than this kind of leader, we're following the wrong person. Because this leader is Jesus. This leader is the rescuer. This leader is the only hope that we have for our broken world. And then Isaiah continues, and he continues to describe this coming king. In verse 4, he says, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This righteousness defines who the coming king is. Judgment is not based off of appearances. It's not based off of hearsay. The unquestionable right decision is found in this way. First of all, who God is. Second of all, what God commands And third of all, what God approves. It is so easy for us to fall into a pattern of reversing that order. That judgment and decision is made based on what God approves, first and foremost. Or maybe what God doesn't disapprove of, right? We kind of bend those rules. We say, oh, God doesn't disapprove of this, so it's okay. And then we go to what God commands, like, well, God doesn't specifically say not to do this, so it's okay, right? And then we might not even get to the third one of what God is. 
We talk ourselves out of this righteous judgment that is only found by seeking, first of all, who God is. Who is God? Then what God commands and then what God approves. And this coming king follows that order to the T. And not only that, follows it to the T emphatically on the side of the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the oppressed, those who cannot stand up for themselves. He leads with justice and with equity because time and time throughout scripture, that is the exact way that we see the character of God played out, the character of God described. It is who God is. God is for justice and equity for the poor, the outcast, the marginalized, the oppressed. Once again, this leader is so contrary to the leaders of our day. And it's here that Isaiah makes a shift in, in what he's talking about. So up to this point, his words have spoken about this coming king and the ways that he will lead and the characteristics that he has and that define him. And here now in verses six through nine, he shifts. He shifts to this imagery of the world that will be when this king comes to rule and to reign. How many of you have seen the movie Miss Congeniality? A few of you. How many of you have never heard of that movie? Nice. Okay, so real quick, Sandra Bullock, she's an actor. Sandra Bullock plays this no-nonsense FBI agent. Um, she goes undercover as a Miss USA uh, contestant in the, in the Miss USA pageant because there is a threat of a terrorist attack on this pageant. Um, and this is not someone who would normally enter into a beauty pageant, not because she's not beautiful, but because she is, she prides herself on being one of the boys. I'm an FBI agent, right? No nonsense. Um, but she goes through this training so that she can literally walk the walk and talk the talk. Um, I won't do the, I won't do the walk. <laughs> I debated it. I decided not to. Nobody wants to see that. Um, so we're going to watch a really short clip of that. Oh, there it is. Awkward silence, and then the relief. Oh, she says world peace. Okay, good, good. So this is, this is obviously a, a joke that all of these pageant girls say the same answer to the question, world peace, because that's what everybody wants to hear, right? And we can all agree that world peace is something that we all want. We want that for our society. But it seems like world peace is getting further and further away. Or rather, we are getting further and further away from world peace. We see so much evidence of hatred and bigotry and war and, and just anger everywhere. 
It feels like we are getting further and further away from world peace. World peace feels like this pipe dream, this fairy tale, this fantasy land that we will never reach. And surely it did for the people of Isaiah's day as well. As I mentioned earlier, they're, they're coming out of this civil war. There's these powers around them. And it seems like God maybe forgot about them. He forgot about his promise to them. World peace is not getting any closer. And so let's read what God says through his prophet Isaiah here in verses 6 through 9. The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion will feed together, and a little child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and a lion will eat straw like an ox. A nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. They won't do harm or destroy anywhere on my holy mountain. The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. What Isaiah is describing here is world peace. The wolf lives with the lamb. The leopard lies down with the kid. Cow and bear grazing together. The list goes on and on. What Isaiah is describing is a world that is put back to rightness. A reordering of the natural world back to God's initial intent, God's initial design and creation. I don't, I don't watch it a lot, but I've seen enough National Geographic to know that those animals that they mention would not go together. They're not, you're not just going to see them hanging out in the wild, right? There's this incredible contrast of predator and prey in each of these descriptions. The most helpless and innocent of these animals are hanging out casually, without any worry, with the most violent and destructive animals. And then we get to verse 8, and verse 8 is a little bit weird. As far as Bible passages go, it's not the weirdest, that's for sure. But sometimes we just have to recognize how weird the Bible is. So it, it says, a nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. No. Nobody wants that. I'm still a fairly new parent, but even I know that's not what you let your kid do, right? I mean, you, they, they say to let your kid, you know, explore. They have to learn about the world with all of their different senses, right? Everett's, Everett's favorite is taste. Um, anything goes in his mouth. Um, but we're pretty good at keeping our eyes on him, right, when he's playing, especially if he's playing with things that we aren't around all the time. But as I'm sure any of you who have had kids or have been around kids at all, I'm sure you know there's always at least one moment where you're watching them. You're like, okay, I have eyes on them. They're sitting there. And all of a sudden, whatever dangerous was around them is in their mouth. And you say, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Get that out. So we look at this and I hesitate to even put it up there. <sighs> I hate snakes. I'm going to leave it up there for just a little bit. So this, this talks about a kid putting, it says, a nursing child will play over the snake's hole. Toddlers will reach right over the serpent's den. Where are that kid's parents is my question. Reaching into the, okay. So we're going to take a look back now 
at Genesis chapter 3, since pretty much everything in the Bible can go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, we can make that connection if you try hard enough. So if you remember back to Genesis chapter 3, the first parents, Adam and Eve, they're created in the image of God, created to reflect God to the world around them, but they rebelled against God and, and against God's authority. They chose their own way. They chose their, to define their lives based on their own authority. And like God is known to do based on his character, he brings judgment on them because he, God does not tolerate sin or wickedness. And so this judgment happens. But what we sometimes forget is that God doesn't just bring judgment on the humans in this story. God brings judgment on the serpent. He says this, I will put contempt between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. They will strike your head, but you will strike at their heels. So what he's telling the serpent here is that the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the human will be in constant battle with one another. They're going to each attack one another in their own way. And yet, in this scripture passage from Isaiah... There's a picture of a world that is renewed, that is made right, that is made whole and complete. It's restored. It is reordered. And in that picture that Isaiah sees in his vision, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the snake get along in perfect unity. There's peace. There's wholeness. There's no danger to this child reaching into the snake pit, as awful as that sounds right now. We see this wonderful imagery of the animals of the world living together in peace, in unity. It is idyllic. But how does, how does this come about? How does, how does one achieve this world peace that humanity has been unable to grasp for so long that Isaiah speaks about here? Well, in verse 9, we read, The earth will surely be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, just as the water covers the sea. Just as the water covers the sea. Guys, there's a lot of water on earth. I looked it up. I did some very basic research. Turns out there is 326 quintillion gallons on earth, approximately. Anybody know what a quintillion is? Because I do not. I don't even know how to fathom that number. So I'm helping you make a little more sense of it. Uh, If all the world's water was poured onto the United States the continental United States, not Alaska or Hawaii, if it was all poured onto the United States in just an upright column, it would go 107 miles into the air. Still hard to fathom, a little bit easier to picture, maybe. So Isaiah is saying, the entire earth will be as full of the knowledge of God as the oceans are deep, as, as the water is. And that knowledge of God in that day with that leader described in the first half of our passage, that knowledge is what makes peace. It is the restoration of humanity back to its original design. As you hopefully heard in that intro video from the Bible Project that we watched, peace is not just the absence of something. It's not just trying to block out all of the bad stuff of our life, and as soon as we can get that out of our mind, we have peace. It's not, it's not just that. The Hebrew word, again, is shalom. Shalom, which means complete or whole. And to bring shalom is to make 
whole, to make complete, to restore what has been broken. As we look around at our lives, at our city, at our country, at our world, it seems like everything that God promised, that this, this idyllic image here of world peace, it seems like a fairy tale. That level of peace is just not our reality today. In all of the thousands of years that humanity has had to figure this out, it feels like we're getting further away. Christ has come, and yet our world still feels like a complete mess. We see at several points in the New Testament that Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these prophecies hundreds of years before. He was born, and he grew in wisdom and in stature, the wisdom of God, the counsel, the might, the delight to fear in the Lord. He lived a life of holiness, of righteousness, of justice, of equity, of all these descriptors that Isaiah uses. And yet, he's despised, he's rejected, he's falsely accused, wrongly convicted, he is beaten and bruised, attacked, whipped, beaten, and put on a cross. But guess what? In doing so, that shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse is cut down. He is murdered, he is buried, and everyone says, well, I guess he wasn't it. guess we got to keep looking. But on the third day, that shoot comes up from the stump of that cross. A new branch rises. Jesus comes back from the grave. He conquers sin. He conquers death. He conquers hell. All for us. And he establishes this new kingdom where peace can and will exist. It doesn't come from human kings, from human ways of life. It only comes from the birth, the life, death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Jesus came to offer peace, to make peace, and to be the peace in our world. He has taken what is broken, and he has restored it to wholeness. And this is what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. I'll admit it feels a little bit awkward to me when we take communion at Advent time. I totally understand it, and I love it, but it feels a little bit awkward and clunky because we're focusing on the waiting and the anticipation of a baby that's coming, but then we're also recognizing and celebrating that that baby grows up and all of these bad things happen and dies. But that's the tension that we should feel as followers of Christ. We live in the already and the not yet. The already of Jesus's birth and life on this earth and the not yet of Jesus' return. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, came to make all the wrong things right by giving of himself. He restored humanity's brokenness back to wholeness and showed us what true peace looks like, what true peace is, taking what's broken, bringing it back to wholeness, even if it's at our own expense. Christ's purpose for coming to earth 
was to save. Not, to, not only to save us from our sins, but to be that peace that sets all things right once again. In communion, we recognize the sacrifice that Christ made for us. The communion supper is a sacrament. It's an act of God's grace. It proclaims the life, the suffering, the sacrificial death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it shows forth the Lord's death until his return. Communion is a means of grace in which we in which Christ is present with us by the Spirit, and we are to receive it with knowledge and thanksgiving of the work of Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church to participate in this. All are welcome. All who are truly repentant, who turn, are turning away from their sin and recognize that Christ is the only one who can save us from it, to be made new, to be made one by the Spirit. In unity with the church, we confess this faith that we've been talking about all day. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So we pray. Holy God, we gather at this, your table, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who by your Spirit, was anointed to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Christ healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. We live in the hope of his coming again and in the peace that only his kingdom can provide. And on the night in which he was betrayed, he took the bread, gave thanks broke the bread, gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you, God, praise and thanksgiving would you pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these your gifts make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and the blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood by your spirit make us one in Christ one with one another and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes again in final victory in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, broken for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance of Christ who died for you. And this is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ has died for you and be thankful. And don't lose your microphone. Now let's pray as God taught us the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As the worship team comes back up to close us with one final song, I want us to grasp what this is all about, if we haven't already. Ray Ortland put it this way. He said, God's kingdom is the only final answer to all of the sorrows, the sorrows, that we have created. But we still live in this tension, don't we? Between the already that Christ has come and the not yet that Christ is coming again. So what do we do in the meantime? What do we do in the time between these two times? We embrace this gospel of peace. We let the reality of this gospel reshape every aspect of our lives. We release whatever we have been clinging to, whatever we have been hoping in and finding our peace in that is not Jesus. And we cling to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We let God transform our hearts and our lives by this message, this gospel of peace. And as we embrace God's peace in us, we are made whole and we are made complete. What has broken, what was broken has been restored and that gives us the ability to joyfully participate with him in the work of the kingdom. To be peacemakers who strive for justice and equity and human flourishing in our own lives, in our own communities, in our own world. We can be participants and we can make known this idyllic picture of the coming king and the coming kingdom. But it has to start in here first. It has to start with us. It has to start with Jesus and with his peace changing us. Invading our souls. We cannot do it on our own. We need Christ, the Prince of Peace, and we need the Spirit to guide us in this peace. Let's sing together.